Well, human nutrition, really, we're not taught a lot. In, in med school, we're told non-fat, basically, right? Exercise, um, eat fiber. That was about the extent of my med school knowledge on nutrition, right? So, so, so that took um, a lecture or two? <laughs> if that. If mm. that, unfortunately, that's the sad part. Um, because our focus was not on the diet changes. It's how do you treat the sugars or how do you treat the cholesterol? So we're very good at treatment, right? We're very good at being diagnosticians. We could check labs on you and say, yep, this is high. But then the question becomes, how do you manage that problem? I did. Well, I had the advantage of struggling with obesity my entire life. My whole family is decimated by diabetes on my mom's side. You know, uncles dying in their 40s and 50s of cardiovascular disease, strokes, um, you know, diabetes complications, amputations and all that. So I'm watching that thinking, hmm, I'm predisposed to this stuff and I'm doing the standard of care. I'm having green smoothies for breakfast and I'm working out, you know, every day. Uh, I'm doing all the stuff I'm telling my patients to do and I'm gaining weight because they don't understand the physiology. They don't understand how things work. And because of people I've come across, Jason Fung, you know, Ted Naiman, a lot of them have had an impact. And I had to sit back and say, hmm, what are these guys hawking? Are they trying to sell a product? So they're telling me you have to have this supplement. No, they're saying, hey, look, lifestyle. Problem for us Western medicine doctors is lifestyle <laughs> is, a, is a tough sell because people say, give me a pill. Give me a pill to lose weight. You know, when I, when I was 60 pounds heavier, my patients were asking me, hey, what pill can I take to lose weight? And I said, if I believed in one, I'd be giving it to myself first. Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, Please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I am pleased today to be joined by Dr. Brian Lenskis, all the way from San Diego. Hey, thank you for having me. Peter, it's, it's an honor. It really is. I'm so excited you're doing this and, and you're going to be reaching people. So thank you for asking me to come on. Uh, it's my pleasure. Um, so to introduce people to uh, Brian, uh, internal medicine doctor practicing in San Diego. Um, apparently, you were there, what, early 2000s? Is that right? That's right. Around 2003, I started, uh, you know, I joined a, a, the oldest private practice in San Diego, actually, Internal Medicine Associates, and practiced there for about 17 years. Okay. Um, so, Matthew, you know, so 2011 you went, and now you've been doing some more, maybe more recently you've been shifting your focus, but let's not get too far ahead. I, I want to um, explore um, what a doctor is taught as they're being trained for a practice in medicine. What are you taught about human nutrition? Well, human nutrition, really, we're not taught a lot. In, in med school, we're told non-fat, basically, right? Exercise, um, eat fiber. That was about the extent of my med school knowledge on nutrition, 
right? So, so, so that took um, a lecture or two? <laughs> if that. If mm. that, unfortunately. That's the sad part. Um, because our focus was not on the diet changes. It's how do you treat the sugars or how do you treat the cholesterol? So we're very good at treatment, right? We're very good at being diagnosticians. We could check labs on you and say, yep, this is high. But then the question becomes, how do you manage that problem? So internal medicine, help me understand what that means as opposed to some other um, branch of medicine. Internal medicine is basically adult medicine. So you have pediatrics who are mostly taking care of kids. Then you have family practice who does the whole spectrum from kids to adults in the same practice, um, even delivering babies. Internal medicine, we focus mostly on chronic illness, you know, cancer, diabetes, hypertension, anxiety, stress, you know, you, you can name it, all the conditions. So basically, I'm a family doctor for adults only, you know, starting at 17 and up. So we focus on the diseases that are really affecting us as we age, you know, so basically I get to know the family, the husband, the wife, and, you know, provide comprehensive care for that. And then other branches of, inter of internal medicine are cardiology, pulmonology. So they go for extra training in their area of expertise, and then they focus on that area of expertise. But they're all licensed as internal medicine doctors also. They take boards for internal medicine and whatever their specialty is. Absolutely. And you went to USC Medical, is that correct? I did. Okay, so here's where I say I don't root for the ducks either. I'm, I'm sorry. For yeah, that. I did. I mean, you brought the bad news up. Yeah, I saw it last night that that, that they lost. Uh, usually, it, it's it's become a tradition to lose to the ducks. So, hats off to the ducks fans out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll we'll all insist on the asterisk, but um, they might not. Um, and, and to explain that, um, an o Oregon State, not a University of Oregon fan, so the Beavers versus the Ducks up here. Um, so let's see, you, so you, you had that sort of information given to you, and you followed it. I did. Well, I have the advantage of struggling with obesity my entire life. My whole family is decimated by diabetes on my mom's side. You know, uncles dying in their 40s and 50s of cardiovascular disease, strokes, um, you know, diabetes complications, amputations and all that. So I'm watching that thinking, hmm, I'm predisposed to this stuff. And I'm doing the standard of care. I'm having green smoothies for breakfast and I'm working out, you know, every day. Uh, I'm doing all the stuff I'm telling my patients to do and I'm gaining weight, right? Gain weight and, you know, and, and just going all the way back, you know, as a kid, I struggled with weight because now I know I was insulin resistant that entire time. I was born insulin resistant. So if I ate the same thing my brothers ate, I would gain weight and they wouldn't. And I'm like, that's weird. Why is one of my brothers a rail thin? The other's in the middle and I'm the heavier one. So, you know, so it was always a struggle. I was never morbidly, morbidly obese, but I was overweight always. So in high school, I played football, and that came to my advantage that I weighed as much as I did. But then I wrestled and would have to lose weight. So how did I lose weight? How everyone else loses weight? Exercise more and eat less. I would starve myself and work out like crazy, right, these huge workouts. But when that wasn't enough, <clears throat> excuse me, we would spit in a cup. We would, you know, roll ourselves up in the wrestling mat, sit in the sauna. sweatsuits, yeah. And you learn that's not real weight loss. That's on the scale weight loss, but it's not real weight. You're not losing fat doing that. You are 
you're destroying your metabolism really. So then when I started gaining weight through, through undergrad, like, you know, they call it the freshman 15 or 20, you know, I, get, I did that. And then I get, you know, cause you take a study break and eat. Then in med school, you learn to, to eat, to calm your nerves. And then you, you're in residency and you eat cause you don't know where you're going to eat again. Cause we're busy and stressed. You go, I'm going to eat now. And then I might not be able to eat again. Then two hours later, you have an opportunity to eat again. So a lot of us got overweight in medical school also and then in private practice i was too busy working 14 hour days work working out i would cut that down because i could either work out that night or see my wife um unless we worked out together it was it was a tough it was a tough pill right so you start realizing um why are doctors dying at a younger age than everyone else you know there, there, there's a lot of reasons be, behind that and we can go into detail on that if you like but i think ben bickman addresses that very well and i attribute him to to the kind of medicine I'm practicing now, he was a big part of that. So, I mean, again, one of the things that happens in graduate school is a lot of times it's an economic thing. What can you afford as well as what you were saying about the stress? Is, and, and then in medical school, it seems like a remarkably unhealthy way to train people that are going to then help people maintain their health. It just seems like there's a severe disconnect in the system as it currently exists. Well, I think the big problem is a lot of doctors are metabolically healthy, right? They, they come in and they're thin and they keep doing what they're doing and it works for them. So when they look at obese patients, they think these guys aren't listening. I thought that a lot too, because my diabetic patients, they would come in, their sugars are out of control. It's like, well, you have diabetes because you're obese. Now, if you took care of yourself, you wouldn't have diabetes. This is what you subconsciously or thinking or it may be consciously thinking so you say okay look tom i'm going to give you some insulin so we can get your sugars under control then you give them insulin to get their sugars under control because the sugars are what we're worried about then they gain 30 pounds you say tom what is wrong with you why do you you're not going to make changes i'm telling you to eat six times a day and eat that so what i'm saying is for 17 years i didn't see a benefit in my patients they got worse they got fatter they got they gained weight and they come to me and go, doctor, I'm eating what you're telling me to eat. And I'm, I'm, I promise I'm doing what you're telling me to do. And we're just like, sure you are. You must be eating cookies and donuts on the side. You're not telling me. So that's why we, the doctors are, are jaded in, in their defense because they don't understand the physiology. They don't understand how things work. And because of people I've come across, Jason Fung, you know, Ted Naiman, a lot of them have had an impact. And I had to sit back and say, hmm, what are these guys hawking? Are they trying to sell a product so they're telling me you have to have this supplement? No, they're saying, hey, look, lifestyle. Problem for us Western medicine doctors is lifestyle <laughs> is, a, is a tough sell because people say, give me a pill. Give me a pill to lose weight. You know, when I, when I was 60 pounds heavier, my patients were asking me, hey, what pill can I take to lose weight? And I said, if I believed in one, I'd be giving it to myself first, right? So that, that, was, that was really what we're, that's really what we're up against is, is there's a lack of knowledge and a lack of, being able to say, hey, this isn't working. Maybe we need to look at a different attack. Yeah, of course, now we have lifestyle medicine being a patented or trademarked item that goes off in a completely different direction, but that's for other conversations. Um, so unfortunately, we get to using terms that we think we understand. You know, we use the same term and we think we're talking about the same thing, but we're not because there are different definitions for the same thing and that increases the 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 lack of understanding um so okay your personal journey then when you're realizing that there is no pill but 
you started hearing information from someone else, you were motivated by your own situation. So when did that start for you about how many years? I believe that was 2017. So about three years ago now, Um, you know, I had started as a matter of fact, you know, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing. I mean, I was in Guatemala on a medical trip. I do volunteer work, you know, every summer and I was there and we were hiking this volcano and the guy looks at me, the guide and goes, you should probably take a horse. <laughs> right. And I'm like, wait a minute. He goes, you're, you're not going to make it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to die on this dang volcano before you, I'm getting on a horse because a lot of the people who are older and out of shape are on the horse. I'm like, uh, so he's telling me I need a horse. I'm going to, you know, I did break a sweat and I did work hard, but I made it to the top of the volcano. But the point was, I realized, man, I, you know, obviously he's observing something. He's, he's not being judgmental. He's just saying, look, dude, you're not going to make it. Right. So that was my first time in my life I've ever had someone say, you're not physically fit enough to do something. I said, I got to look into this stuff. So what happened is I came back and one of my patients had lost 40 pounds. And as a primary care doc, I look at this guy, no one loses weight. Spontaneous weight loss is scary. If you want to scare a doctor, lose weight without doing anything, because I guarantee you either have diabetes or you have cancer (laughs) or your thyroid's out of whack. I've seen that happen. But for the most part, that does not happen. So people think they're a genius and they lose all this weight. So this guy, I'm thinking, "Uh oh, he's either gotten diabetes because he's always been overweight either has diabetes or he's got something bad. We got to work this guy up. So I asked him, what are you doing? He said, you're not going to like it. He said, I'm doing this crazy thing. It's, it's called the five, two plan. So two, basically two days a week, Tuesdays, Thursday, he fasted ate 500 calories or less. And I'm trying to reason it out and thinking, how's he doing this? Why is he losing weight? Because we all know, or I knew, I thought I knew that if you don't eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you go into starvation mode. So I said, this guy's going to slow his metabolism. This is how people think. This is how Western medicine, because I was there, right? He's going to slow his metabolism down on Tuesday, and then he's going to eat twice as much on Wednesday because he's starving. So I said, well, what about Wednesday? What do you do? And I go, what about the other days? What are you doing? You have to be doing something else. And he says, well, uh, I eat whatever I want. I said, so you're having beer and pizza and, and soda, whatever? He said, yeah. And I'm like, this is impossible. So I start doing research. Who do I come across? Just like everyone else in the world, you could you could say the name for me because you'll you'll know Jason mm-hmm. Fung. I'll say it. I know. I just in case you said the wrong answer, Peter. I don't want to put you on the spot too much. But Jason Fung, I look up this guy and start watching video after video. And I'm thinking, what's this guy selling? And he says, and and so finally the host said, Well, if fasting's so great, how come everyone's not doing it? And Jason said, Well, there's no money to be made. I don't make money by telling you to fast. So I'm like, okay. So he says, look at the research. So I started looking at the research. Look at, and so what was happening with my patient, I now know, is on that Tuesday when he fasted, he dropped his insulin level down and he dropped his triglycerides down. And so then the next day he wasn't as hungry and wasn't having cravings. So he said the next day he ate less than he normally would after fasting the day before. And I could tell you from that's true. And my experience is also true. If I do a longer fast, I'm never hungry. It's more social and I want to eat, but... I can do it ment- physically. If I'm on a desert island, I can't eat. It's like, okay, no biggie. If you're, once you're fat adapted, if, before you're fat adapted, it's very, very challenging. So that's another topic. But so anyways, I started realizing, huh, it's working for this guy. And I checked all of his labs. He wasn't diabetic. He didn't have any other health problems going on. He actually went off it because he was afraid he lost weight so quickly that he was nervous. And then he started gaining his weight back. So I felt reassured by that. And I'm thinking, hmm, let me try this. So I start losing weight. And I think, oh my gosh, I've been struggling with the same 10 pounds for five years, right? I can't get below. And all of a sudden I lose 30. And I was like, this is kind of crazy, huh? It's like getting rid of sugar. Then I start realizing insulin resistance. And Jason was nice enough to return an email. I emailed him and he called me back and said, Brian, let me explain how it works. 
And so by him being kind to me and helping out, then I started looking into it. And I started having patients come to me asking, doctor, what are you doing? I see you're losing weight. Tell us your secret. I was like, well, I can't really <laughs> tell you my secret because it's not accepted by the medical community. I, I can use myself as a guinea pig because if I die, I'm not going to sue myself. But if something happens to you, I get sued, right? So they said, we don't care. Just tell us what you're doing. And I said, well, here, watch Jason Funk. Here, listen to this person. Watch this. And, you know, I can't give you that advice, but you can look. And all these people are coming off their meds and getting better. Within six months, I have 11 people come off insulin. In my years before that, zero people. So I'm thinking, hmm, there's something to this. <laughs> so then what do you do? Say, well, I'm staying with the standard care that was killing me. Or do I say, eh, if you want to try it, let's, let's give this a shot. Plus, I went to Low Carb USA where I saw you and other people speaking on all these different aspects. And I was like, wow, either all these people are delusional or there's something to this. And now study after study after study is confirming what, what we were seeing clinically. And that's exciting. So uh, that becomes then a combination of the two approaches, the intermittent fasting with uh, therapeutic carbohydrate reduction type of diet and seems to then um, produce even better improvements in metabolic health. In fact, I think it's true that we're, the, we've seen dramatic improvements in metabolic health, even in, in the absence of significant weight loss, if we can get the diet adjusted. Is that true? That's absolutely correct. And something that I would Think And still, I, I'm up against that same thing. I have a patient lose a bunch of weight. They do low carb and everything gets better. And the blood pressure gets better. They come off insulin. All these things happen. And then the cardiologist looks at that patient and says, oh, they lost weight, so everything got better. And I was like, well, it's not the weight loss. It is the metabolic health is lowering the insulin that allowed all this to happen. So instead of saying, let's look at how we can lower that insulin level, because I, I'll tell for instance, if I send someone for a liposuction and I take off 30 pounds of uh, subcutaneous fat, does that include, in, in, improve their mortality rate? Zip, nada, nothing. It could even, some are even arguing, and I would argue it worsens your risk because the dangerous fat is not the love handles, it's not the, the fat on your butt. The dangerous fat is the visceral fat around your organs. So that's why I look at this stuff and say, okay, what do I not want to have? Visceral fat. Could I be overweight and be healthy? Yes, I've seen 400 pound people metabolically healthy. Right? It's not, see, we, we conflate these things and say it's the obesity is the problem. Well, if I have a you know, guy who lifts weights every day and puts on 30 pounds of muscle <laughs> and loses his visceral fat, do you think he's at more increased risk, metabolic risk? Absolutely not. So it's not about the weight. And that's for me is what, what the medicine I'm practicing now. I have to really, really work with patients to say, look, you've lost, I have a guy who lost 10 inches off his waist and he lost two pounds in the process. Two pounds. He lost 10, how, how does that work? Magic? No, it's because what he did is he got rid of all of his visceral fat. And while he was losing visceral fat, he was putting muscle mass on because he was doing weight-bearing exercise at the same time. So I tell him, this is a failure, you know, because he laughs because he goes and talks to his friends and they'll say, oh my gosh, how much weight have you lost? He says, two pounds. It's a joke, right? That's a joke. You can you know, have a good bowel movement and lose two pounds. That's a joke. But the point is he's metabolically healthy. And you look at his insulin levels, his cholesterol, his triglycerides, all these things get better. So I think that the focus, and as a matter of fact, in my clinic, it's metabolic health. I don't care about the weight, metabolic health, because we're so focused on that. And if I can make you have more lean muscle mass and less visceral fat, 
I have done a lot to help you and you've done a lot to help yourself. And, and I think that's the point is we get so focused on how much weight, you know, someone on keto and they lost 30 pounds. Well, it's, it's not the weight loss because I can give you a diuretic and you'll lose weight, but is it make you healthier? No, it just makes you dehydrated, right? My diabetics who come in and they lose 30 pounds is because they're dehydrated because they're, they're, they can't, they can no longer handle that sugar and they pee it out. There's the only way to get rid of it if you can't store it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think when you understand the physiology, you start understanding, Oh, okay. It's not about just, weight loss that's going to make you healthy it's metabolic health weight is a poor metric of health it is the worst metric for health i'm telling you of all the stuff i look at i look at it and, I, and plus you know my style of medicine now is i i can do a 24-hour glucose monitor on on my patients right i get a, a fasting insulin i get their three much sugar average lipid panels and i can have a 24-hour scale that they can be on and blood pressure cuff and so i thought the problem is the scale is more detrimental than helpful, really, when we're, we're looking at metabolic health because people, if their weight only drops three or four pounds, but their insulin goes from 58 to nine, are you kidding me? They don't realize because people aren't educated and most physicians aren't educated on metabolic health. We're worried about obesity. So that's the problem. If I have someone put on muscle mass because I get them working out, and they're getting thinner, uh, and and that's kind of the joke I'll tell my patients. And they're like, "Yeah, I look great. I'm, I'm wearing smaller clothes and everything, but my weight hasn't changed much." I was like, "Do your friends get on the scale with you, or do they see you when you're out in public somewhere?" Right. So, that's the paradigm we really, really have to work on. Is that it's not about the weight loss. People do lose a significant amount of weight. That does happen for sure. But I'm telling you, we're gonna learn a heck of a lot. I'm re that's why I'm researching this stuff and trying to figure out why is it where people have a lot of visceral fat, they might wait, lose weight on the scale slower than people who don't have much visceral fat. And I think it is, our body's gonna let our visceral fat get down to, uh, and this is my opinion, uh, a certain level, a certain threshold of visceral fat, and then you start burning peripheral fat, which is different type of fat, it's not the same, uh, metabolically, physically. And when you lose peripheral fat, guess what? You lose a lot of water weight that's associated with that. So there is a difference. I know Dr. Volek and some other people, I'm, I'm trying to really dive into that science because the worst thing that can happen is someone goes a low carbon keto for a while. And I've seen it happen for six weeks and they're not losing weight. Then boom, all of a sudden they start losing weight, but you give up too early because you have to burn through that visceral fat. It's more energy dense. It's, there's something physiologic to that hormonally that we have to look at. Um, so that, that's kind of where we're at right now. You think, okay, good. Is, is it just about weight loss? And the studies show if you're doing it, if you're doing a diet for weight loss, uh, you're less successful than if you're doing it for physical health, for health. If you're doing it because I want to be healthier, I want to be able to walk up the hill. And, and um, you know, that's what we're seeing is people getting better. Their joint pains are better, their mood. So your question is, sorry about the long answer, but your question is Do Dr. Liktash with, with Jason Fung, um, published a study where a lady brought her, her A1C, three-month sugar average, from the, I believe it was the 10 range down to the five range with zero weight loss. <laughs> they gave her enough calories, but she was burning through visceral fat, putting on muscle mass, her weight didn't change. So to, to make the argument that it's all about the weight loss is incorrect based on that study and other studies that have shown similar findings. Uh, it, it's one more example of how the wrong thinking of these chronic diseases are the result of obesity as opposed to obesity being one of the manifestations of metabolic derangement. Correct. 100% agree. Yeah, it, it's a marker because what people observe is that obese people get diabetes, right? That's what we observe. So we go, oh, obesity causes diabetes. But the fact is 
And as a matter of fact, I have a couple of people in my practice and I didn't realize their ethnic background. And so I'm looking, I say, like, gosh, they don't have much visceral fat and they have diabetes full blown. This is weird. And they both say, oh, well, it was, it's a father and daughter. They're Japanese. <laughs> they can't store enough fat. So when, when you run out of storage units, it overflows into what? Diabetes, because you can't get rid of that sugar. So in my old practice, I had 11, 11 men that were less than 160 pounds with type 2 diabetes. A lot of them were of Asian and Indian descent, less than 160 pounds. So if obesity causes it, these guys didn't read the textbook. The point is they didn't have enough uh, fat. They couldn't get fat. They didn't have enough fat tissue to get fat. So what happens? You round your fats, the morbidly obese. And on the other end of the spectrum, I've seen people, the, the, the heaviest I've seen is 575 pounds without having diabetes. <laughs> Why? Because they could just keep storing fat away forever. And it wasn't causing that stress on the body. Whether If you have a ton of storage units, right? If you only have one storage unit, you can't put that much stuff in it. If you have 55 storage units, you could put a lot more junk in there. And I think yeah. that's, the, that's what we have to realize, the physiology of this whole thing. Well, and people in animal husbandry have known for some time that different breeds of different species of livestock are more or less likely to lay down fat given even the same diets. And, you know, in the beef industry, they select for tendency to marble and those sorts of traits. But this, this reminds me of, of an example that you've used in lectures, which I really like. And, and that's the, the metabolic express. Um, and and that, you even give me a hat. I love the hat. My family loves the hat. That was very kind of you, by the way. You're, you're very welcome, everyone. <laughs> I have an you engineer should, hat. You should have an engineer hat for your metabolic express. So if you could explain that, just to run through that analogy, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, for me it was a hard because I, you know, I, I, I'll tell you. And and you were asking earlier why did I switch my practice of medicine? Because when you have six or eight minutes with a patient in defense of doctors you don't have time to give this whole lecture and you can't talk for an hour with each patient. So what I would do is I would put my patients who I knew were going to get diabetes or who had diabetes out of control right before lunch. And I would work through lunch every single day. But that hour I spent with that patient took away time from my family and going home at night. So I'd get home at eight at night. So I had, a, I had a really moral dilemma on my hands is okay. Do I try to help people? And, and the frustration for me is 80% of the time people aren't going to listen. But those 20% changed their lives, right? They changed their lives and they saved the healthcare system. So I was thinking, I'm wasting my resources. I'm talking to the wall that doesn't want to hear it because you're not going to give up your cookies and donuts and cake no matter what evidence I provide. Uh, it was very frustrating. So one morning I woke up and I was thinking about it. And I was like, how do I explain this in a way that makes sense? It just And it just came to me. I said, like, it's like a train. So when people say carbs are from the devil and carbs are evil. That's not necessarily true. It depends. If you have, uh, if you have a train and you can only put a hundred people on your train, right? So the train is your your liver and that's your backup battery. Um, so if I can put a hundred people on my train and I get to the first stop and I have nine hundred people sitting there because I'm having pancake syrups and or syrup and orange juice, I filled up my train already. So now what? Everyone's seen those those videos in Japan where they get to the next stop and they're like. No one else could get on, but no one could stay because if, if the people who are sugar stay in the, in the, in the um, station, that's diabetes. So they can't stay there. They got to go somewhere. So if your liver is your best backup battery, really your muscles are your best backup battery. But once they're full and you're not sit, you're sitting around doing nothing, then it has no choice but to go get on the train, right? On the, the, the liver train. 
So once you fill up your liver, you have a big problem because it's going to be hard. And this is a simplified version, but uh, schematically, you can understand it. What do you have to do? You, you think about Japan at rush hour, you start hiring people to push people on the train and jam them in there, even though the train is full. So who are the people pushing people on the train? The, those are the, the pushers. The pushers are insulin. So what I can see is if your insulin is going higher and higher and higher, it's telling me that your train is full. But at the same time, your triglycerides go higher and higher and higher because those are people who couldn't get on the train, basically, right? The, the, so when I see the triglycerides going up, HDL dropping, all these things happening, I could tell someone's metabolically sick. The whole point is metabolic health. So the point is, if I have a train and I can hold 100 people and my first stop, no one gets on, when I get to the next stop, I could put 100 people on. So I could put 10 people out of the next stop, say, right? And hopefully people are getting off. How do they get off the train? By exercise, activity, watching your stress, getting enough sleep, all these other things that, that we could talk about. But so if all day long, the, the person fills up their train with 100 people because people are getting on and off. It's never a problem. It doesn't mean your carbs are bad, but once you oversupply your carbs and you can't hire enough pushers to push people on, now you have type 2 diabetes. That's ultimately what it is. And that's why clinically, if I'm following someone's insulin level, I can see. As a matter of fact, just this week, I had a guy, he's, he, he's actually a family friend, and I get his labs back. Everything looks, he's, he, he's overweight, and he's vegetarian, by the way. And his insulin level is 58. And I'm like, holy cow, a normal healthy insulin is less than five. I was like, I'm, I'm not trying to scare you, but you are going to get diabetes if you don't change what you're doing. <laughs> your train is overflowing full and you have, you've hired all these people. That's, they're telling me your train's full because if I empty out your train, you don't need pushers anymore, right? Your insulin, you need, you need always need insulin. Don't take me wrong, but you don't need as many pushers. You need those guys you standing there in case X. they need. Hmm? You don't need 10 X. Yeah, exactly. You don't need 10 X. So that's when you start saying, oh, this train. And so it was just such a simple thing. And I thought this will help me explain what I'm talking about with metabolic health. So it was a very helpful, helpful tool because I'm telling you, people see that and all of a sudden they go, oh, I don't want my train full. It's a simple concept, right? Because I can tell if I look at your triglycerides, your HDL, your LDL, all these markers that we look at, what it really means. Because people, what is high triglycerides doesn't mean anything unless you realize, oh, what I'm, my trains over full, my car, my triglycerides go up. So if you have really high triglycerides, that can mask high LDL also. So we get a false reassurance that you're okay because you're LDL, because that's all anyone talks about. But you have to look at it in the big setting and say, uh oh, this is a, this is a problem. So I think that's the point that the train analogy just helps us to understand. Like, look, you don't want to overfill your train, and everyone thinks it's the fat that makes you fat. The problem is. We switched over to a low-fat diet as a society, and we got fatter. So if fat was the problem. Either we didn't listen or the recommendation was wrong. And my bet is the recommendation was wrong because I, I've lived it myself, and I've, I've watched patients eat a really low-fat diet and, and get obese. So now the problem is I, might, I have this guy in front of me, and I have to say, look, here's what the changes you have to make. And now he's making those changes, and I will 100% guarantee his insulin level is going to start dropping. Because the problem, the other problem is it, in this analogy, the other problem is if your insulin is really, really high, how is it getting high? Your pancreas, which is the organ that makes it, is cranking out insulin all the time. So anyone knows that if you're running on the treadmill full speed, you don't have to be that smart to tell them that you can't keep running on the treadmill forever. At some point, you're going to tire out. So when you tire out, what happens? You no longer have pushers and you have a full train. 
you're in big trouble because those pushers can't do anything with that extra sugar. Now you have insulin. Now what do you have to do? I mean, now you have diabetes. Now what do you have to do? Shoot insulin to, to force those people on the train against their will, right? Because you're hiring more and more people, but you're injecting it. Your body can't make it anymore. And that's the physiology of diabetes in a nutshell, because there's other aspects of what insulin does. And, and one other thing, just, just to throw it out there, is insulin if it's high, it's telling your body there's a lot of energy in the system. That means you have a lot of people waiting to get on the train. So if all of a sudden I take away all the pushers, the people on the train think, oh, there's no pushers. There must be no people on waiting. So let's let everyone off the train. And when you let everyone off the train from your stores at the same time, now you're in diabetic ketoacidosis because you cannot take the brakes off. There's no insulin to tell them to stop letting people off the train. So it is a big problem, you know, and, and that's why it's a simple analogy, but I think a lot of people... When you see it, you understand it makes it impacts you and think, oh my gosh, I don't want my train full. So what I see is people emptying their train by what? Exercising, getting enough sleep, not being stressed, cutting their carbohydrate, eating less frequently, right? Because they're shoving less people on the train and they get metabolically healthier and their insulin drops and their A1C drops and everything starts and their triglycerides go down. Why? Because people can get on the train now. They don't have to sit in the, in the, in the circulation. So I think when you see it from a simple standpoint, you think, wow, how in the world are we not talking about this? How does no one make this association? It's incredible. Some nutty doctor has to think about something just spontaneously that explains what he's trying to explain. And I could do it now with you in a couple of minutes. It would take me an hour and a half to explain this to someone before just using physiology, right? And, and when you look at the standard American diet and how much of the energy is supplied by sugar, uh, either as sweetened beverages or as added sugar to processed food, and then we could look at grains processed into, into various products as well, but sugar is... Somewhere, I think, in the 25, 20, 25% of calories range, which, especially when we drink, you know, the when we drink our fruit instead of chewing it, or when we drink the, the beverages, um, that is almost immediately absorbed and just puts a whole lot more people on the platform waiting for the next train to come by, which is exactly the wrong thing. So... It, it, I, I like the analogy. It's useful to me as well. Um, is there something that it, when you look back now, you recognize as being your biggest offender in what you ate on a daily basis? Or Yeah, there's so much. I mean, there's so much because I thought, you know, what I was doing is a green shake. Forget it. Forget it. You're drinking because it, it tastes terrible. I was, I just do a green shake. Okay, what do you put in it? You're not going to just drink kale by itself. I guarantee you that. So people are getting kale, but what are you going to throw in? Spinach, and you're going to throw in other stuff. And they. So I was doing that. And what's interesting, and I've seen data on this, where if you take spinach and you cook it and you eat it, you say you cook spinach in butter, or you cook spinach and you blend it up and eat it, you're going to release more sugar from that spinach just from uh, blending it up compared to compared to just cooking it. So I was thinking, well, why not? If I want the nutritional value of spinach, why don't I just put, make some eggs and put some spinach in it? So when I made that change and I made some other changes, and plus I was eating the other, the other fallacy that for me, from my standpoint is eating six times a day. We have tons of data on this now, right? Cause we were thinking, I thought back then until I met Jason Fung, 
I would at lunchtime say, oh my gosh, I don't have time to eat. I'm rushed. I'm stressed out. I have all these patients to take care of. I don't have time to eat. So I'll stand here at my desk or, or sit at my desk back then and I'll eat real quick, not even enjoy it, just shove it down because if I don't, I'm going to shut my metabolism down. But when you look at the studies, Jason, like BS, there's no study that shows that. And guess what? There's no study that shows that. <laughs> there's no study that shows you're going, to, as a matter of fact, there's data that I've looked at that if fasting for three days, your metabolic rate goes up, not down. So if my metabolic rate goes up with three days of fasting, why in the world would I go into starvation mode when I'm an obese person uh, because I don't eat one meal? Are we that weak as a species that we would just all die? And so when you think a lot, I think what's happened is we just accepted things to be true. And still to this day, people say, well, if you don't eat six times a day, you're going to shut your metabolism down and your, your sugars. I go, okay, here's my continuous glucose monitor. You show me where I should have eaten when my sugars are stable all day fasting. You know, I've done longer fasts, of which I'm not a big fan of personally and, and maybe from a weight loss perspective. But I just did an 11-day fast supporting someone um, uh, who wanted to try one. I said, I'll do it with you. How dumb me, and I did. But it was interesting. So you, you find things, and I looked at my sugars the whole time. I never got a low sugar one time. But I'm fat adapted. Now, if I'm not fat adapted, I try to fast, forget it. So that's why when you have a 400-pound obese person, right, they can't fast, and they're eating all the time. It's not because they're they're lazy, they're slovenly, or whatever people attribute to them. It's because their insulin is so high that they can't get to their fat stores. If you can't get your fat stores, you're going to be hungry. If you can, you're not hungry. Well, and insulin is going to direct energy to storage rather than to use. And it only takes a little bit of a change to make a discernible difference. And so you've got you know, to use a, perhaps a oversimplification, but you've got the muscles and the organs saying, uh, we ordered some food, is that not showing up? And so the, the ingestive behavior follows the signal, but we're eating food that keeps insulin high. And so that keeps shoving some of that energy into storage rather than to where it was wanted. And so that perpetuates the, the eating. Um, and then we could also talk about what you're eating. In other words, it's not nutrient-rich food. It may be energy-rich food, but that could be white sugar is energy-rich. It's not nutrient-rich. And so now the body is looking for essential amino acids and not finding it. And that's triggering some ingestive behavior. And so we have all these things going on. And at the, I'm, I was trying to remember um, some of what I read in Good Calories, Bad Calories. They talked about the energy expenditure of a heavy person can frequently be higher than the person who's lean and thinking they're lean because, you know, they're, they've got this high functioning metabolism or whatever. And it's, it, it it's in some cases even the heavy person is eating less than the lean person um it's true it's absolutely true and you can and i've seen it and i was like i know you're not lying but what you're eating is high carbohydrate intake right when you're eating a high carbohydrate intake even these liquid diets you look at them yes the argument is you know it, we get into these battles and the battles it's all on semantics because is it you know that low carb people hate this calories in calories out model right and the reality, it's true to some degree. And when I say it is, it's easy for me to say, look, it's, it's, like, it's the same thing Gary Taubes talks about. It's like, okay, if you want to be rich, spend less than you're making. 
And if you live long enough, you'll be rich. <laughs> but it's easier said than done. You say, that's nice, but I got to pay my bills and I got to pay. So what happens is doctors tell their patients, exercise more and eat less. But if you're addicted to food or you can't get to your fat stores and you're hungry all the time, how do you accomplish that? This is where we get into these experiments. And, and, and the problem is, because I'm a realist, I'm a frontline doctor. So I can't lock my patients in a ward and say, okay, you're eating 600 calories a day. And that's it. You're stressed or you want to drink with your friends. No. 600 calories a day, everyone will lose weight. There's no one. When you look at these horrible examples of prisoner of war camps, there was no one there that was obese. They go, oh, look, that one poor guy couldn't lose weight when he was starved. There's no one who won't lose weight. So is it healthy? No, it's not. And it's not sustainable because as soon as you can start eating, your body's going to say, I don't want to go back to that state. I'm going to put on extra fat. So this is what we've seen over and over. So for me, it's not about weight loss. It's about sustainable weight loss. It's about being able to lose weight because guess what? If you take someone, as an example, who's 400 pounds, you go, okay, look, we're going to be on a 500-calorie-a-day diet. Their body, like you said, needs more energy to survive. So once they burn through that energy, they are starving because they can't get to their fat stores. Even though they have a huge fat store that's on them, that high insulin. So if I put that same person on a low-carbohydrate diet for a couple of weeks and they drop that insulin, they can get to their fat stores. And all of a sudden, like you were asking about intermittent fasting, the natural progression I see is we go on low-carb and then they go, yeah, I'm not hungry all the time anymore. It's weird. I do Zoom meetings with all my patients and they'll say, I'm not hungry. So the problem people don't understand, it's not about the calories it's about satiety it's like the example i would give is if you go out to dinner and you eat a huge meal and you walk out and you go wow that's my favorite food that looks really good what that guy's having you don't sit down and order that and eat it again because you're full but you say next time i come back i'll have that so we've conflated a lot until we start understanding that is is we say well you need more willpower well if you're starving it's a survival it's not willpower it's survival yeah. instinct yeah, but if i'm not time. hungry it's easy to pass up stuff if i just ate a huge meal i i, I just don't want to eat more because i'm not hungry but if you're hungry 24 7 it's very impossible so i say just don't. it's the same exact i would use as, as what i tell my patients it's like if you're out, coming out of the desert and you're thirsty <laughs> and i say well don't be thirsty anymore i don't want you drinking water don't be thirsty like it, that's the same logic people are using. That's why we get upset because it doesn't make sense. But if I can say, look, if I can give everyone a magic pill where you're no longer hungry, guess what? You lose weight. Why? Because you're not eating as much. So ultimately, energy balance plays a role. And I think when we, until we step back and look at physiology to understand, because my body is not so dumb, and I can tell you for a 100%, at least my body, and I know no one else's body that I've seen, I do not get low sugars when I fast. I fasted for 11 days. I had zero low sugars right? The only way I can make it happen, because if I go drink a bunch of alcohol and I'm in the middle of a, a fast, I will be in big trouble. My sugars will drop because the body's going to metabolize the most toxic thing first. Alcohol, first priority, because it's a toxin. Your body knows it, right? So drinking on a keto diet, yes, you can get low sugars. I've seen people get low sugars. I said, how much did you drink the night before? 100% accuracy, I've been correct. <laughs> if they're not on medicines to do that. I haven't had anyone get low sugars on a ketogenic diet. I've never seen it. And most experts have never seen it unless there's a good reason for it. Unless you're having liver disease or, or, or you're injecting insulin or you're on a medicine called glipizide. Not, and so I've stopped people on meds. They never get low sugars anymore. So I think that's the point is we're treat. Then you go say, well, doctor, you're treating low sugars with carbohydrates when the low sugars are from a drug. Well, just take the drug away and you won't have the low sugars anymore. That's been the, that's been the kickback on low-carb diets. They go, well, it's too dangerous. Well, guess what? If I'm monitoring my patient 24-7, I know exactly where their sugar is. I could look at any second of the day and tell you where their sugar is. So when I work out, my sugars go up. Well, then why am I carb loading before dinner? That's natural. So on both sides of the equation, we've been wrong, and I'll tell you why. 
if I have someone who's morbidly obese, diabetic, and I put them on a high, high fat diet right away and a bunch of calories, their sugars don't improve. If I can get them to fast for a day, their sugars drop once I get them fat adapted. Why? Because it's an energy overload. If your fat stores are full and I give you more fat, where are you going to put the fat? You have to put it somewhere. So this is why, and it's, it's the same argument with the low carb saying, if I don't eat sugar, am I going to get low sugar? I won't. That's why we have a continuous glucose monitor to tell me that, right? Once you're metabolically healthy, now, as another caveat, uh, is if I get someone who's not fat adapted and I say, go work out tomorrow and don't eat any carbs, they're going to get low sugars. <laughs> they will because they can't get to their fat stores to release the sugar. Their glycogen is not very good because they have high insulin levels. But once they get fat adapted, I have, I, and I have this documented with my patients, all of a sudden their sugars spike with exercise. And then they flip out and go, oh my gosh, every time I work out, my sugars are going high. I'm like, congratulations, you're fat adapted because you can release that fat stores now. You're burning fat. Isn't that what we're here for, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So when you understand the physiology, you feel a lot better. And the problem is people aren't educated on physiology. So we, we make crazy recommendations based on lack of knowledge. Well, yes, generational learning. Um, one thing to offer you that I think you may appreciate for the next time somebody advocates uh, willpower. And you could just say that the next time you have diarrhea, use willpower. Um, yeah, see, I get that from, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just lose willpower. Just don't let it happen. Yeah, so that's what I mean. Exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly um, that. You, you can tell I get fired up about this stuff because, um, you know, we see it clinically. And, and it's frustrating when people say it doesn't work. But they haven't tried it, but it doesn't work. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and that's that one universally true statement that's true. Every time it's said, everywhere it's said, it won't work here. If, if the person saying that has anything to do with it, you're right. It won't work there. It may work right next door. It may work with another guy next to you as long as they don't have that attitude, you know, that it won't work here. That's going to shut everything down. So you've mentioned it, but I just want to explicitly talk about it a little bit. You've changed your medical practice now to where your making, you've made the shift to emphasize the time it takes to communicate effectively with patients rather than Band-Aid. You're trying to help them get the understanding and then make the changes so that these more of a root cause approach rather than a symptom treating approach. Yeah, I'm still an allopathic doctor, right? I still give antibiotics. I still treat other stuff. And if you have a headache, I might give you something different. But what I'm saying is, hey, if I can educate that patient, I, I basically direct primary care and metabolic health. I, we, we, have, we, we do metabolic health we, that we really monitor every week we're with them. Then I do direct primary care, which is, you know, I'm your doctor. So if you got something wrong, you hurt your knee, come in and we'll take a look at you. We do all that stuff. So that's my practice. So my practice model, believe it or not, mostly is metabolic disease. Why? People, if you get diagnosed with diabetes, you are my best friend and I'm your best friend. Why? Because you're scared to death and the doctor's saying you need more drugs to get rid of the sugar. And I'm saying, well, there's another approach. We could do it a little bit differently. So I think for me, I'm an educator, right? Because I understand that I'm investing up front in my patient because I know if I get your sugars under control, guess what? you're an easier patient for me to manage. <laughs> you're, you don't need as many drugs. You, we can taper your, we get you off meds. I have people coming off drugs every week. And before I would hear it, because it was always, and it's funny enough, I'd always see these things that these chiropractors would put on, go, oh, we can cure your diabetes. And I was like, there's no cure to diabetes. But now I'm looking, I was like, these guys were way ahead of me because they understood that it's not, and, 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 and the, the word cure is the worst word. 
So what I would say is we could put in remission. We could get you off meds. Because no drug works if you don't take the drug anymore, right? So if you can't stick to it, it's useless. So I think we have to be able to say what works for you. Peter, you're my patient. What works for you? If you go, look, I got to have two cookies a week. Okay, let's try this. See what we can do to make that not happen. And But over time, what happens is people go, I don't even crave cookies anymore. Like, it's weird. I laugh because people, it, it's universal. I mean, all my patients are like, I'm not hungry all the time. And they have a freedom because they don't feel like they have to shove something down just to, mm-hmm. to, to um, survive. Yeah. So, so that's how my practice changed. So I could say, let's monitor you closely. Let's monitor your blood pressure. Because when people are like their blood pressure is running normal for two weeks after dropping their insulin. And I, and the other thing is I have the great blessing and fortune of having people like Dr. Unwin um, who've said, look, 90% of the time, high blood pressure and insulin are intimately related. So you get their insulin under control. Guess what? Blood pressure gets better. Is it the weight that changes? Nope. You got their insulin under control. So what causes highest insulin? more visceral fat. That means your train is full. You got problems. We got to work on that. So for me, I could look at someone and I, you know, really weight loss is secondary. It's looking at those insulin uh, metabolic markers as they get better. We know that. I mean, the American Endocrine Society has said it. Everyone has said it, that metabolic disease is the key. If you look at, at who's dying of COVID, metabolic disease is the key. Look at who has Parkinson's, dementia. You, you, cross, you, you cross the spectrum of everything I treat. So what I'm getting at is if I invest in you and you believe what I'm saying and we work together, we can prevent a lot of these things from happening or make them more mild. You know, you can't say that it cures everything. And But as a matter of fact, uh, just this last night, you know, um, Dr. Fetke said, I'm debating someone on whether, you know, uh, low carb helps uh, psychiatric illness. I was like, here's data, bring, <laughs> done. You know, I, we're seeing it clinically. I saw it clinically before I had a lot of data. I'm like, I'm just observed. Tro and I observed this two years ago. And then people said we should have our license revoked for even discussing it. Now the data is there supporting us. So I'll, I'll gloat a little bit and say I was right. But it wasn't about me being right. It was about saying, hey, what's best for my patient? So I just got a uh, tweet this morning, depression, anxiety, reflux, uh, obesity, prediabetes, all these things resolved in a patient that, that the family said there's no way I could help them, right? And they're, they're killing it, and they're, the whole family is blown away. Plus, the whole family's changed what they're doing. So I think w- when we say, look, results speak, my opinion doesn't mean anything. But if I can put a continuous glucose monitor on you, and you eat cereal, and you see what happens, Everyone comes yeah. back and stuff that I don't even mention. They go, "Oh my gosh, I had corn yesterday. You want know my sugar did? Boom! I had a, two Twinkies." And you know, and they see it. Then they don't need me. They can look at that and go, "Holy cow! This is terrible. Yeah. I don't want to do that." Right? Yeah. So it takes yeah. the excitement out of certain foods when you see what it does to you physiologically. Well, yeah. I mean, the, uh, one person recently said something about this being the decade of data over dogma. So with some of these devices, some of these more rapid tests, the advent of being able, if you can afford it, to pay for tests yourself, you know, from various um, services, you can get information to help you monitor meaningful metrics of metabolic health. As we said, it's not weight, it's not BMI, it's not total cholesterol, it's not LDL cholesterol. Unfortunately, too many people, um, those four things that I just rattled off are what their doctor will have spoken to them about in their last physical. And yet there's all this information. So hopefully there's ways like what you're doing with your, um, your podcast and your practice and your presentations to help that message 
get further out to more people so that they can begin to have their own journey. And maybe I think it was uh, Dave Feldman talked about the pivotal patient, right? The one that you had that had lost 40 pounds, the the one that changed Dr. Unwin's perspective, the one that changed Dr. Westman's. I mean, there are all these. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that and, and hoping that that day can come a little quicker. And I've actually been somewhat heartened by some people that have heard me a couple times at, you know, like agricultural um, focused events and they'll come up or from the, the audience at one. And they said that, you know, their son had, you know, this, this test result that then led to them going to the state capital for the hospital there for them. And, Basically, their doctor said, no, I'm not that worried about it. This is what you need to do, which is basically, you know, what we've been talking about for a few years. So the message is getting out there, and but it's slow. And I want to uh, I'm grateful for anyone that's out there pushing in their own way to affect individuals, because I do think it's got to be from the ground up kind of an approach. Um, yeah, and I want to show the same respect to you. You know, I met you at a, a conference. I was walking and I go, hey, who are you? What are you doing here? Who, why are you here? Oh, I'm speaking right now. I was embarrassed. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm speaking to the speaker. I don't even know he's the guy. So that was a little while ago. But, you know, I think you standing up, watching you up there talking about red meat and, and the benefits, and, and I was thinking, oh, my gosh, this guy is going to be up against it, right? I know I'm up against it, but hearing you step up there and say, look, here's the facts, here's the data, here's omega-3, here's omega-6, let's talk about this. I mean, you get attacked from inside the community because if you say, hey, grass-fed doesn't make that much of a difference based on this number and this number, and people get upset about that because – they want what they believe to be true rather than what is true is true. So I want to know what's true. <laughs> I don't want to care what everyone else thinks. I want to know the truth. But for you to stand up, because I know there's a lot of interest against what you are doing and a lot of interest against beef and all that. And, you know, there's some interesting data I'm looking at on stearic acid versus linoleic acid. And so, you know, and, and, and uh, vegetable oils and all this stuff. And you start stepping back and say, uh-oh, have these guys all been wrong? And if they are, at some point you have to have an integrity to say, I was wrong. And that's why I do to my patient. Remember when I told you, you never skip breakfast, you're going to go into starvation. Remember this, remember this, remember this. I was wrong. I was based on the information I was given. Now I have to change what we're doing. Or I could just stick to that dogma and kill my patients and say, well, I just did what I thought I was right. Because like we say, you can't unsee what you've seen. So that's why I'm so excited about you doing this. And I know you, your integrity and what you believe. And I think it's really important for people like you to step up and say, look, guys, here's regenerative farming. Here's the answer to this, because there are so many arguments about the, without knowing the facts, when you, I've always seen you politely with a sense of humor, put out your facts. Just, I would consider you in, in like a Dr. Unwin, where he says, look, here's my data. I'm not going to argue with you on Twitter about it, but here's my data, <laughs> right? Let the people decide. And, and you're the same way. And I respect you for that. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. And I, I know you and I share a similar perspective, and at some point we get to answer for what we did or didn't do. And um, yeah, I, I know for myself, um, it's absolutely possible to be sincerely wrong. You're saying things that you believe to be true. You got them, we got them from teachers, we got them from sources we respected. and. And then at some point we're confronted with information that makes us reevaluate, gives us the opportunity to reevaluate. And then that's the test. 
it, it, it's not before that moment. It's in that moment and after that that is the test. Um, and and so thank you. That uh, so you you've mentioned uh, before. I give you a chance to turn the tables. Um, you had mentioned doing some work um, in other countries in the summer. What what if you wouldn't mind just what briefly are are you doing there? Well, gosh, probably for the last fifteen years, even longer, but really had a calling. I mean, I go to Guatemala. I used to go to El Salvador, but it got a little too dangerous for me. Um, and the government didn't want us there. So it's like, it's hard to help the people. So, you know, I do a lot of work in Guatemala. I've been to, to Vietnam. I've done medical trips in a lot of different countries, Cuba. I was in Cuba a few years ago. Um, so I think, you know, what I do is go down and try to, you know, there's a lot of people who don't have access to medications. You go down there, but for me, as a matter of fact, I was really, really sad that this trip got canceled this year because of COVID because they have a massive epidemic of obesity and diabetes in Guatemala and the good people don't know. And they're walking around drinking sodas with sugars of 300 and I know better, but they've been, who beat me down there, the soft drink companies have beat us down there, right? And, mm -hmm. and they've told them you need energy and this is how you get energy. And it's so pervasive in the, in, in, in the country. So you see people on insulin and all these things like, man, we can, we can educate people. And I was fortunate enough the last time to educate some of the really high up um, athletes down there that I spoke to that had diabetes and they're crushing it. They're doing fantastic. And so, you know, so I go down there just really with the team and we, we provide meds for, for kids and for people who can't get meds because they just don't have access. And we bring down dentists and, and toothbrushes and toothpaste and all this stuff with the, they, you know, one family shares an entire, you know, entire family shares one toothbrush and think, oh my gosh. So yeah, I go down and it's more my mental health. I go down there and I'm a real doctor and I don't rely on MRIs and CAT scans. I, I have to rely on clinical judgment, but I'm surrounded by great people who can love on these people. And you realize, I'm telling you, a lot of the illnesses they face are the same as we do. Stress, depression, anxiety, their husband's cheating on them, they, you know, and, and so you realize we can make an impact. It doesn't have to be pills. Um, and then we also establish a clinic with a local doctor who can do follow-up and make sure and we leave meds and we, we can do all that. So yeah, it's hugely rewarding. I have some of the best times of my life. And as a matter of fact, on my other podcast, Life's Best Medicine, I talk about my experiences down there so people can get an insight to who I'm working with and what I'm seeing and what's happening because it's, it's amazing. There's some amazing people that will never have this platform unless we give it to them. Mm -hmm. Okay, your turn. Uh, is there... Are there things, questions you'd like to ask me because I've been peppering you with them? No, gosh, you know, I love, I love watching you. I love, you know, like seriously, I've had some mornings where it's been a rough morning and watching you put something positive on Twitter or just a dumb joke that's like a, you know, you and I might be the only ones who get the joke. But, you know, things like that, have, really, I see you being a positive influence, someone who, who will bring enlight, enlightenment to people. And that you're a person who does your best to um, help people. Like you, you say, look, let me let me see what I can do. And I know we've had some off um, off the record discussions about you starting this podcast, and I'm like really happy to see that because I know you have a lot to offer. So for you, for you, you know, I'm watching you and listening to what you're saying, and 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 it's very encouraging to me. You know, so I don't I don't have any questions for you other than uh, will you come on my podcast and we could talk about this stuff because I, I know there's more to you than what people have seen, and I think. Um, really, I think it's important for people to peek behind the curtain to say, why does this guy take the stance? Why is he 
doing this to understand what motivates us and, and what drives us. And I think, you know, I see you have a decent, good heart. And I think people who are listening to this podcast already know that because obviously they're drawn to you. So, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think I have a ton of questions. It will be a five hour discussion about regenerative farming, you know, animal, you know, uh, you know, making sure that people understand. But I know all those things are coming out in your podcast. Right. So these people know your integrity and your character. And I think that's the important thing is that you present that and the way you present yourself and then they can reassess and go, is he have an agenda? Is he trying to push something? Is he trying to trick us? You know? And I think that's important. I think all of us have that, um, that responsibility to say, look, I'm going to step in a day. And if I'm wrong, I'll tell you I'm wrong, you know, but I'll tell you, I haven't caught you in any wrongdoing or any bad stuff. So I I feel very confident or otherwise I want to be here talking to you right now. Understood. And, and yeah, I mean, I try to be, open about i'm an agriculturalist that's my training that's my background these are the people that i've been trained to serve directly part of what i'm trying to do here is bring your message to them because whatever you imagine for the general american public uh in terms of metabolic health i can assure you that the agricultural community doesn't look that much different uh, in some cases, arguably, it might even be worse. Um, you know, the food that's served at the complimentary breakfast at some of these conferences is like, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, come, come to the medical conferences. I bet you we got you beat. I look at it and think, oh, my goodness. Wow, this is crazy. Yeah. yeah. Like, it, 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 it's, that's the irony, too, right? You look at these guys go, don't eat red meat. It's going to kill you. But then they're having donuts, jelly-filled donuts, you know, every terrible food, bagels, and, you know, and you think, wow, these guys just don't get it at all. Like, they, they have no clue. It's like me telling you don't drink, but I'm drinking five beers on the side, right? So, yeah, it's true, though, right? You're right. There's a lot of – we have to educate, and that's what I love is – present the data and let people decide. And that's what I love about what you're doing. It's just amazing. It's great. Cause then if you're wrong, I can call you out on it. Go, oh, Peter, you were wrong. You lied to us. You know what I mean? And same thing for me. I think that's what we, we have a responsibility. And if we're wrong, we got to come clean yeah. on it because there's stuff we might believe today that next week we say, oh, geez, that wasn't hundred percent accurate. Has right? that happened in the past? Yes, it has. Um, and, and so between the two of us, I see that this idea that, you know, you eat animal source food, you're going to kill yourself or you're going to kill the planet. So you can take care of the killing yourself and I can help with the killing the planet arguments because I think the underappreciated effect that we can have if more people can improve their health is how that itself will improve the world in ways that people have not yet really started talking about. So Thank you for giving me this chance. I'm happy to come on your your new um, venture and talk. And um, so, yeah, thank you for your time on a on a weekend, and uh, look forward to the next time we can get together. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and thank you everyone for listening. And and uh, it is an honor, really, because when, when I knew you were going to have a podcast, I was really excited. So I'm honored to be here. And, and yeah, we'll work together. But I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. We have to dispel uh, false notions and also i think um we can't conflate things right we have to is nutrition nutrition we take nutrition out of finances we take the finances out of you know saving the world but we have to look and say okay are we talking about nutrition here are we talking about saving the world so if you're talking about saving the world and you could say look here's my argument you know so i think we all have to what i'm 
getting to is stuff you can speak about. I can't without any, with any authority, I can have you on to speak about it, but I can't speak about what you do because I don't know enough about it. Right. So I trust people who say, look, here's my agenda. Here's what I'm doing. Right. So that's why, and, and in medicine, you're looking to me to say, okay, from a medical perspective, am I saying the right thing? Right. So, but I think that's important because we can't conflate a lot of stuff. And I think that's what happens a lot in medicine right now where people, you know, tie all these things together, but we're talking about the health benefits and risks, not, societal values and things and it's important that all are critical because we have to address all these things so that's why it's great to have people of expertise in different areas to to discuss these things hence the ruminati and glad you're a member of the herd thank you i'm glad herd mentality i'll take it all right take care my friend you too